0: Well, good morning. Good morning. Uh, I want to begin by thanking uh, this morning Jessica Legron and the chapel team for this wonderful invitation to speak in chapel. It's certainly an honor and a privilege to stand here in this pulpit in the Nestus Chapel, where so many sermons have been given over the years by godly men and women. Yesterday, of course, Dr. Witherington began our series on calling and response. And today I want to continue in this theme. However, I want to take a little different angle on the issue of calling. Instead of focusing on other callings in the Old Testament, as Dr. Witherington did yesterday, or in the New Testament, as he'll do tomorrow, I want to narrow in on one aspect of our calling. Certainly, many of us would raise our hands and say, yes, we've been called. We've been called to follow Jesus, we've been called to follow ministry, or even called to a specific task or area of the world. Many of us would not be here today at Asbury if we didn't have some sense of call. Well, today I want to focus on an aspect of our calling that is often neglected, the call to endure persecution. As we read through the New Testament, we are reminded of the many who were persecuted for carrying out their calling and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and following in Jesus' name. And it appears that Jesus and the early apostles saw this as a continuing feature of Christian calling. So it should not surprise us that when we are called to bear the name of Jesus, we we can expect to be treated like he was. As Jesus himself mentions in John 15, 20, remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. But first we need to clarify what we mean by persecution. If there's one thing that Western Christians lack, it's properly identifying true persecution and suffering. How do I know this, you ask? Let me present to you exhibit A. I call this Adventures in Missing the Point. What you see on screen, and this is not a joke or an onion.com headline, this is real, Uh, this is an invitation to join some Christian speakers on a cruise through the Caribbean to talk about persecution and suffering. (laughs) Let that sink in for a minute. Hopefully some bells are going off. Yes, for only the small cost of around $1,500, you too can learn about persecution and suffering (laughs) aboard the Dreamliner. As we're laughing, we know this, we're laughing because we know there's something inherently problematic about learning about suffering and persecution while sipping Mai Tais as we cruise through the Bahamas. Something does not equate. Or take another example. We're only a few weeks away from what some in our culture will remind us is a war on Christmas. The rhetoric associated with these talking heads is that because we can't put up a Christmas tree or bear another person saying happy holidays, we are being persecuted. Give me a break. (laughs) As Philip Jenkins said in a recent Christianity Today article, quote, it is obscene to complain about a war on Christmas in the United States when there are Syrian cities without Christians to commemorate their holy days at all for the first time in some 1900 years. That's an authentic war on Christmas. we all also be reminded that the war on Christmas ended when Jesus arose out of the tomb. Death did not have the final word. So given our poor track record, it would be helpful to take a fresh look at the teachings of Jesus to understand more fully this aspect of our calling. We, of course, must continue to allow Jesus in his teaching to sketch out that vision for us, to modify and perhaps even correct various misconceptions that we have about being disciples of Jesus. The role of persecution, especially in our North American context, can often, and sometimes usually does, fall outside the vision we have for our calling. However, Jesus' teaching indicates, and history certainly bears out, that persecution is to be expected within the Christian life, especially as those who are called in the name of Jesus. To begin, we ought to note the long history of persecution. Persecution did not begin with us. It did not begin in 1776. Uh, It actually has a very long history. In fact, Jews, because of their distinctive customs of circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, and food laws, were often targeted in the ancient world for persecution. Their claims to monotheism, the worshipping of one God, often invited persecution from from a polytheistic environment. In fact, their entire history from Egypt to the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks and to the Romans is one long history of persecution. Christians, likewise, were persecuted for failing to participate in the various religious political festivals of the ancient world, and for failing to give due honor to the emperor. We could note the smaller persecutions in the 60s in the first century under Nero, or we could mention the, the the latter persecutions underneath Diocletian in the fourth century. The history of the church could be written as one long story of persecution, and in many places today, the global church is the persecuted church. These are full of Christians living out their calling and facing daily persecution. If we define our calling without reference to persecution, we will stand as an anomaly to the reality of the church in the global world. I want to share a few stories that relate persecution and calling from the global church to orient us around this theme. The Pew Forum estimates that Christians face a staggering total of persecution in a staggering total of 133 countries. This represents two-thirds of all nations on earth. About 100 million Christians are persecuted around the world with conditions worsening for them most rapidly in Syria, Ethiopia, and North Korea. Some 150,000 Christians will be killed every year for their faith, and this is according to both the Catholic Relief Agency, Aid to the Church in Need, and the Evangelical Group Open Doors. Let's begin in Pakistan. On June 14, 2009, Asia Bibi was working on a farm with her Muslim colleagues when a discussion about Christianity and Islam arose. During the conversation, some Muslims accused Asia of insulting the prophet Muhammad and beat her. Her Muslim colleagues then spread the rumor that she had insulted the prophet and they spread this message around the village. Five days later, a group of Muslim villagers severely assaulted her. When the police arrived, they arrested her and registered a case of blasphemy against her. Asia Bibi is in jail and faces the death penalty. For the past three months, she has been kept in solitary confinement and she is now suffering from smallpox due to the unsanitary prison environment. This is according to a recent report by Christianity Today. Despite all of her trials, Asia is steadfast in her faith. She spends her time by fasting and praying for her release, and she also prays for Pakistan and its people. Three weeks ago, her death sentence was upheld by a Lahore Lahore High Court in Pakistan. Asia Bibi's calling was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, and this resulted in her persecution. Is my calling or your calling any different than hers? We should also note Christians in Iraq. How many of you have seen this picture going around Facebook? Perhaps it's your profile picture. It's, of course, the Arabic letter N, pronounced noon, and it stands for Nasara, or Nazarene, which is an Arabic slur for Christians. It's how ISIS, the Islamic militant group, marked out homes in Mosul where Christians lived. The symbol stands for their confessions as followers of Jesus. Right now in Iraq, there are Christians being tortured and killed every day. Christianity is being eradicated from Iraq at the hands of their enemies. This is persecution for simply being named a follower of Jesus, for identifying with Jesus. Again, is my calling or your calling any different than theirs? Let's look at India. This past year in the Kanakata state of southwest India, Hindu extremists stormed the home of Miss Dadama. Demanding to know who gave her permission to preach Christianity. When she didn't answer, they dragged her and her daughter to a nearby temple where they tried to force them to to reconvert back to Hinduism. When the pair refused, the extremists brutally beat them while their home was destroyed. Mrs. Dadamo was called to preach, and her preaching resulted in persecution. It bears repeating Is my calling or your calling any different than hers? One final story. Two summers ago, I was in Nigeria and I was told stories about the militant Boko Haram movement that had launched a religious cleansing campaign in the country's north. I want to introduce you to a friend of mine who I think really embodies this message of persecution. His name is Johnson Adajela. I met him in Nigeria, and here's a picture of us. About every two weeks, two to three weeks, I get an email from him updating me and some others on his ministry. He tells me what he's up to, how they're evangelizing, and what things they're accomplishing. He spends his time in northern Nigeria witnessing the Muslims in areas dominated by the terrorist group Boko Haram. Johnson believes that the gospel was great news for him and his family, and it can be great news for his Muslim neighbors. He spends his time not only sharing the gospel, but providing clothing, food, water, and training for those in the villages he visits. Now, this certainly isn't safe. He could work somewhere else. But he chooses to work here. He chooses to share the gospel with a people group that are opposed to it. In fact, I was recently corresponding with him, and we were talking about the greatest commandment in Matthew 23. He told me that it's these verses, loving God and neighbor, that keep inspiring him on the need to reach out to his Muslim neighbors. He asks, how do we claim to love Christ and continue hating the people he died for? This past week, I received another email from Johnson where he noted that a fellow pastor was killed by Boko Haram. A pastor was killed for preaching and bearing the name of Jesus. Again, is my calling or any of our callings any different than theirs, other than location? My friends, these are our brothers and sisters, and they can tell us stories about what persecution really looks like. They can teach us about how our calling to follow Jesus is never easy. But even despite that persecution, we can rejoice. They keep sharing the love of Jesus despite the ongoing persecution. Because they believe with all that they are that Jesus means what he says in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Let's take a look at how Jesus frames this issue of persecution. Starting in verse 10, Jesus is, of course, in the middle of his sermon on the mount. In verse 10, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted. In these verses, we find a repetition of the blessing language that characterized the whole entire section of the Beatitudes. Here in verses 10 through 12, we find two blessings, blessed are you and blessed are those that describe the reality of persecution. And then in verse 12, Jesus gives the reason or supporting argument for why we should endure persecution. Matthew is quite specific that persecution is tied to righteousness, is what verse 10 makes clear. We need to stop here and mention that while there are many things we could be persecuted for, this does not give us a blank check to write every time we are offended. Being offended is not the same as being persecuted. Remember this come Christmas time. Matthew draws the connection that the person that is blessed is the one that is persecuted because of righteousness or for the sake of righteousness. Matthew is pretty specific. What's interesting here is that these verses, both 10 and 11, are paralleled. Matthew has paralleled these two sayings of Jesus. And what's important is that on account of me, in verse 11, that is because of Jesus' name, is paralleled to the because of righteousness statement in verse 10 that is, to be persecuted for righteousness' sake and for Jesus' name, are similar matters. If persecution is tied to righteousness, then we have to ask the obvious question. What is righteousness? Here in this passage, righteousness is defined by living in the name of Jesus, which, of course, is a way of saying living according to the way that Jesus teaches us to live. The whole Sermon on the Mount spells out what this looks like. It's following Jesus and pursuing peace instead of violence. It's following Jesus and thirsting after what is right. It's following Jesus and showing mercy rather than anger. For all these things, Jesus says persecution will come, and for that we are blessed. When you live out the Sermon on the Mount, it will most likely result in some form of persecution because it disrupts the status quo. The Sermon on the Mount is not the way the world typically works. Persecution will follow pretty quickly on the heels of the one who puts the Sermon on the Mount into practice. And our callings must incorporate these values. To put this another way, this is how we are called to live as we live out our callings. This is how we are to live as we live out the ways in which God has called us in ministry. Jesus continues in verse 12, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Sorry, in verse 10. Those who are persecuted in the present time on account of righteousness are full participants in the coming kingdom of God. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. It's theirs. When we endure persecution, we can do it with the hope that God will vindicate. Do we trust God's promises about a future reward? That ours is truly the kingdom of heaven? We confirm that hope when we face and endure persecution. As we will see in verse 12 in just a minute, Jesus connects this to a long tradition of suffering on behalf of God. When we move to verse 11, we see a subtle shift here in these verses as two things happen for the first time. If you're familiar with the Beatitudes, two things should stand out. For the first time, Jesus inserts himself into the Beatitudes. As you read through them, they're kind of these generic statements. But then in verse 11, he says, "...on account of me." Jesus inserts himself into the Beatitudes, and for the first time, the address shifts from the third person, blessed is the one who, or blessed are, to the second person, blessed are you. Such unique aspects show that the announcement of blessing is no longer generalized. Rather, it zeroes in on the disciples listening to Jesus, and it calls them to identify with him despite persecution. For the first time in the Beatitudes, identification with Jesus is key to participating in the blessings. Jesus, of course, lists several types of persecution in verse 11, such as defamation, verbal verbal abuse, slander. And then he says, saying all kinds of evil things against you. I really like how Dale Bruner, a commentator on Matthew, reflects on this phrase, say all kinds of evil things against you. He remarks, quote, in obedience to scripture, and to Jesus' extraordinarily authoritative claims, disciples will be called fanatics. In seeking reconciliation, they will be called cowards. In decisions for sexual purity, they will be called puritanical. In fidelity to marriage, they will be called prudish. In rejecting oaths, they will be called sectarian. In responding nonviolently, they will be called weaklings. And in loving their enemies, they will be called unpatriotic. Are you called to follow Jesus? If so, this is part of that calling. Where is Jesus calling us to stand with those who are persecuted in a much more severe way than us? Where is he calling us to stand up for them in a way that may be uncomfortable, in a way that may be inconvenient, or even socially unacceptable and risky? In verse 12, as Jesus moves on, we have a command to rejoice that echoes this blessing language of verses 10 and 11. Those who are blessed by God issue forth with rejoicing. Here Jesus begins to call one to experience the present in connection with the future coming kingdom. Jesus highlights that the one who faces persecution stands in a long line of witnesses of God's people who face similar circumstances. Here we see from the Old Testament through the connection to the prophets, those who were called by God, they suffered on behalf of their calling in obedience to Yahweh on behalf of his name. Here, likewise, there's an equating of Jesus' disciples with the prophets of old, those who are called to bear Jesus' name. Obedience to Jesus' way of life, or to live in his name, or on account of him, results in a similar outcome. and during persecution places one in a prophetic stance, as we bear persecution on behalf of God's name and on behalf of God's story. It's, of course, easy to see persecution as a sign that something is being done wrong. Being slandered, defamed, abused, both physically and verbally, and mistreated can often be deemed a sign of failure. And often from an outside view, it is taken this way. This is what it is meant to indicate. You have failed. Change your course of action. However, with the connection to the prophets, Matthew signals what the whole gospel spells out. What appears as defeat in the present time is God's way of saving. We see this ultimately in the cross, where it appears that Jesus has been defeated... But it is revealed that this is how God saves. Likewise, persecution for the sake of Jesus' name looks like failure, perhaps even to ourselves. But it is really the way in which we join in God's movement to take his message to the world. If you have or will endure persecution, the Sermon on the Mount says, Take heart, for by doing so you stand in a long line of God's people who are called like you to follow God who bore persecution and faithfully awaited God's vindication and intervention. I want to mention one last thing before we close. We spent this morning looking at persecution, but right before these verses, peacemaking is the focus. Notice in verse 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Now, as attentive readers of scripture, we should notice one important thing. Nothing has changed from verse 9 to verse 10. We're still on the mountain. Jesus is still teaching, and he's still addressing the disciples. Matthew doesn't want us to miss one of the important connections in this summary of Jesus' teaching. The connection is this. The same people who are called to be peacemakers are the same people who are called to endure persecution. There is a connection between the two. For often those who seek peace are often at the receiving end from the masters of war and violence who persecute and oppress. Even more challenging, those who are called to make peace are most likely making peace with the very people who persecute them. Herein lies the gospel of the kingdom. We seek peace with those who persecute us. We do not respond in anger and violence, perhaps the most natural of reactions. Rather, through the power of God's indwelling spirit, we embody the life-giving message of the cross, a message that once came to us, that is, while we were still enemies with God, Christ died for us. It is this message from the cross that Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. As we live out our callings, we should expect to face persecution. Jesus did, Peter did, Paul did, and many Christians around the globe still do. Why should we be any different? Are we some sort of massive exception? Jesus calls us to endure persecution, but to do so in the way that he showed us. Jesus calls us to live as he lived, and Jesus calls us to respond nonviolently and with love and sacrifice. We love and pray for those who persecute us, that they might taste and see the salvation of God. We find that in the call to endure persecution, we are uncalled to embody the way of Jesus himself, because the characteristics of the Sermon on the Mount are ultimately embodied by Jesus himself. The command to take up our cross, it's a calling. It's also the largest sign of persecution. It's a call to follow after Jesus. Like Jesus, we take up our cross for the very people who chose to put us on the cross in the first place. My brothers and sisters, this is part of our calling as well. May God give us the grace and the strength to share the gospel of God with those who seek to persecute us. In so doing, we embody the upside-down, counterintuitive way of the kingdom. We follow what the first few centuries of the church did so well. Answer the call, embody the gospel, endure persecution, change the world. Will you pray with me? Creator God, we come to you as your servants who are called, called to bear your name, called to bear your gospel in a world that is, that is often set against it. We pray that in this call to follow after you that we will not shrink back from the call to endure persecution. But as we've seen in, in the image of your son, Jesus Christ, that we will embody the truths of your self-giving love, that we die for those who, who persecute us. May you continue to give us the strength and the grace and the mercy to live out this calling in your name, amen.